The following message is made available for you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Mora, Minnesota. For more information, visit us online at www.emmanuelmora.com. What is this? You might argue that it's a $20 bill, that it's a piece of currency, and you'd be right. But this is also the most powerful and divisive paper on the planet. Money is definitely good. We need it in order to survive. We need it in order to thrive. We, we certainly need it in order to uh, pay the bills and, and put food on the table and clothes on our back, shoes on our feet, and a roof over our, our head. However, money is also responsible for some of the most tragic things in our world. The number one thing statisticians will tell you that married, fam- married couples argue about is over finances. There's been a lot of uh, blood shed over the years, whether domestic with murders or internationally with military campaigns over the issue of money. This next week, courtrooms all throughout the United States will be filled with hearing lawsuits over certain amounts of money and who wronged who over what. People have and and will go to jail over money. But perhaps the biggest sticking point when it comes to something like this is the issue of taxes. It is a part of life. And uh, they have been part of every civilized society since civilization has been recorded. And ever since that time, people have complained about taxes. And why is that? Because we work hard, most of us anyway, to earn this and to be able to take 100% of it and put it right in our pockets. However, we know that that's not necessarily realistic How many of you are excited and you count down the days for when you get that envelope from the county assessor that tells you the value of your house? I don't see any hands, so that tells me that none of you are really excited to see how much your house is worth because you know that the value of your house is going to determine how much property tax you are going to be paying that next year. And in my experience, it never really goes down. How many of you have a red heart on your calendar on April 15th that you can't wait to sign those checks or to file those taxes so that it can go off to Uncle Sam. Let's say you scored a million-dollar winning lottery ticket. If you were to take the full lump sum, I did this on a, a, a lottery calculator this week, if you took the full lump sum, uh, or a let's, let's say you did it in annuity, so you get certain amounts every, every year. In Minnesota, that would mean that you would pay $33,330 per year on those taxes. The annuity goes over 30 years, and so by the time you would pay the taxes on that $1 million that you took out, you would pay $999,990 in taxes, leaving you with a gross outcome of $10 in winning the lottery. 
If you invested well, hopefully that helps you out. If you were to take the lump sum uh, and it was a greater amount and you got a million dollars in the lump sum, you'd pay $322,500 in taxes on it, giving you a grand total of $677,500, which is still a lot of money. But think about how much of that uh, is not the million that you won. Benjamin Franklin was right when he said that there are two things that are certain, death and taxes. And even then, after you die, the state will still tax you, as there is an estate tax of about 13% for your estate, depending on how much your estate is worth once you die. Well, in our passage today, the enemies of Jesus try to paint him into a corner over the issue of taxes. In order to do so, two very strange bedfellows come together. On the one hand, we have the Pharisees who are staunchly anti-Rome. They believe that Israel ought to be independently governed, and so to pay taxes to Caesar is, uh, is an overreach or an appropriation of the state, and it might even mean idolatry. On the other hand, uh, they're, they're joined by the Herodians, which are the pro-Herod team that is pro-Rome. They're all about the government. They're all about uh, taxes. They had deep allegiances to the Herodian dynasty, which afforded them a lot of political power. But when it comes down to it, when the Pharisees and the Herodians approach Jesus, they, they're really not interested in Jesus' opinion on taxes uh, or the division between church and state or religion and state, however you want to, uh, to categorize it. All the way back in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, the Herodians and the Pharisees came together in order to conspire against Jesus to uh, find ways to get rid of this guy. And as religious and governmental representatives, this is an opportune time to trap Jesus. If Jesus says, yes, paying taxes is a good thing, he must face the wrath of the culture who hated Rome and were overtaxed. If he says no, then he is guilty of sedition and he would end up being crucified. They are trying to put Jesus into a box by which they would not have the responsibility of killing him, but he would still be gone. So the question that's posed to Jesus has very little to do with money and taxes. It's the tax man calling right now. Somebody is, is late on that. Uh, it rather has everything to do with who owns you and who has authority over you. It has ultimate allegiance to where our... Uh, it has to do with our ultimate allegiance and where that lies. And when, as you look at that, uh, that dollar bill again, if you look at this 20, and you consider that nearly uh, half of this is going to go to Uncle Sam, we look to Jesus as the only one that can answer and inform us on the issue that is most pressing on our day. As Christians... How are we to live under the lordship of Jesus Christ as citizens of heaven while living temporarily under the authority of the state? Well, and the first thing that I think this text uh, brings us to is that we need to put, quit playing games with Jesus. We need to quit playing games with Jesus. You could define the Tuesday here of Holy Week as the day of Jesus' grilling, and I don't mean that he's putting on a barbecue. This is the day that Jesus is going to be 
uh, intensely questioned over who he is and what he came for. He's on the hot seat from leaders of these various subgroups. It began with the morning we looked at a couple weeks ago in which the, uh, he entered the temple and the chief priests, the scribes and the Pharisees asked him, what right do you have? Who gives you the right to knock these tables over and get rid of our market here? After our passage, the Sadducees will press him on the issue of the resurrection. And then finally, the scribes will get their chance to come to Jesus and ask him about the particulars of Israelite law. And again, none of these questions were to come to Jesus so that they could hear his immense wisdom. But rather, they are coming to Jesus with these questions in order to mount evidence and more evidence against him so that they can finally try him. And we know that because Mark tells us so in verse 13. It says, Then they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to trap him in his words. Well, who are they? Well, most likely these, these Pharisees and, and the Herodians are emissaries of the Sanhedrin, which was like the, the supreme court of the religious folks. And Mark is explicit that we, uh, that we understand that these men come with ill intentions. They're not coming because they are nice people. And if he didn't make that clear, verse 15 would lead us into thinking that they were spiritual seekers rather than spiritual snakes. The word sent that Mark uses here in, in verse 13 is the exact same word that the New Testament uses for apostle. It means messenger. So here they are, messengers of this group that is trying to get rid of them. They're sent to trap him, which uh, in the original word there is often used when a predatory animal stalks their prey out in the wilderness. They are hiding, they are following, looking for that opportune time to snap their jaws on him. And that's exactly what they are doing. And they try to trap him through one of the oldest and most effective ways of manipulation. They use flattery. Now, flattery is a sin that we often don't talk very much about in the church. But, it per, but perhaps we ought to. What is flattery? Merriam-Webster's defines it as this. It's an excessive and insincere praise given especially to further one's own interest. A modern definition might be that you are verbally buttering someone up in order to cook them. That's a good way to think about it. Um, I praise God that he radically uprooted this sin in my life when I became a Christian. Because when I was a young man, a, there were a, more than one of my friends' moms nicknamed me Eddie Haskell. And for those of you that don't know who Eddie Haskell is, he was the friend of Wally on Leave it to Beaver, who was known as the Big Brown Noser. He would come up and say, oh, Mrs. Cleaver, that's a nice dress, Mrs. Cleaver. Oh, I like your hair, Mrs. Cleaver. That was me. And thankfully, I thought it was cute, but looking back on it now, I'm not so sure. Uh, at, it, at its root, it's manipulation. That's all it is. It manipulates the hearer into thinking and feeling that they're safe. These people obviously think I'm great, and so I can let my guard down with them. And these two groups, they, they employ it naturally. I mean, these, these guys are professional 
flatterers here. And Jesus sees right through it. Look in verse 14. When they came, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality, but teach the way of God truthfully. And I wonder if you, if you caught the irony in these verses. Because notice first they come up to him and they say, Teacher, we know that you're truthful. And they're absolutely right. Every word that comes from Jesus is truth. He is the very embodiment of truth. But yet, as they are, uh, they are uh, coming to him, they are not being truthful. They are hypocrites. They're coming with the garb of being a seeker when in fact all they're trying to do is bury this guy. It's not surprising that uh, if they are willing to illegitimately put them to death, what would make us think that they have any problems with lying about it? This is the character of these folks here. You don't care what anyone thinks. That is, he isn't swayed by the opinions of others in regard to his teaching or who he is. And the reason that they're saying this is precisely because they do care what other people say. I mean, think about it. You look back here, and they are so driven by fear of the populace that they're willing to let Jesus know that that is something that they admire about him. Again, here it says, Nor do you show partiality, but you teach the way of God truthfully. Again, they are in themselves completely opposite of what they are saying that Jesus is here, and they're speaking the, the truth about him. And you and I may be taken in by such flattery, but Jesus here, he is not. Uh, he, uh, his, his divine omniscience, it doesn't take his, his divine omniscience to know that uh, it, these guys are not safe. He knows from his experience with them, and he also knows uh, based on the question that they ask and who it is that asks this, that motives are not pure. Verse 14, here's the question they ask. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't? Shouldn't we? And they think that they finally got Jesus in that gotcha question. How is he going to get out of this one? They're playing games with Jesus in order to entice him to say what they want him to say. And unless we are really introspective, we will be just as clever in playing games with Jesus. We may not have the motive of trying to destroy him. Uh, we may, in fact, butter him up with very selfish motives. It is entirely possible for you and me to come here on a Sunday morning and sing the praises of our Lord and King, the one who bled and died for us, and relishing in the grace and mercy of Jesus, all the while trying to manipulate him in defeating our selfish desires and our selfish wants. It is entirely possible for you to delude yourself that you are believing in Christ in order to get the answers that you want and in order to provide the help that you think you need. If only you put on a robe of righteousness, play the part of the holy saint in the public, and all the while living like a devil in private, you think that Jesus will say 
or do whatever you want him to do. You will be a spiritual Eddie Haskell if you come here on a Sunday morning and put on your church face and let everyone know that it is well with your soul and then leave only to spend the rest of your week or your day living as if Jesus means absolutely nothing to you. Like the Pharisees and the Herodians here, you may feel like you got one past the goalie, but Jesus is not impressed. He sees through the charade. Look at verse 15. Knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why are you testing me? Those aren't words I ever want Jesus to say to me. Why are you putting me through this? Either you're with me or you're not with me. Jesus is not interested in how clever you are. Jesus is not, uh, uh, he is not interested in our self-recognition. He is interested, however, in your admission of your motives not being pure. He is interested in you turning from those things and turning to him as the only one that can rescue, from, rescue you from these things. He doesn't owe us anything, but he freely gives himself up so that when we, return, when we turn to him in faith and repentance, that he will gladly save us and help us. So we need to quit playing games with Jesus. But second, we, we need to know who gets what. We need to know who gets what. I have discovered a problem in our house. I have tried unsuccessfully to stop it or to even slow it down. I've tried to adapt to it with little success. But for some reason, my kids keep growing. And they keep getting older. And that in itself is not a problem. But the byproducts of it are, we go through at least a gallon of milk a day. Food seems to disappear magically the day of or the day after it comes back from the grocery store. It seems like we're constantly buying new shoes and longer pants. But for me, those aren't the things that I struggle with. Rather, the issue that confronts me most on my problem is the laundry. Because when our kids were younger, I could always tell who gets what. Jonah was the oldest, so obviously he gets the bigger ones. Silas is the second. He gets the hand-me-downs. We know how that goes. Lydia is the only girl, so we know exactly which ones go to her. Jude was the little baby, so he would have toddler clothes or maybe infant clothes. But it gets infinitely harder when they get bigger. On Monday, Julie very kindly said to me, you know, when you fold the laundry, I often have to go through the piles and rearrange whose clothes go to what. Because that's really hard. When, when people have the same size sock and a different logo on it to put them in their right place. When people wear the same size t-shirt it's hard to know, unless it's some event, who it belongs to. 
She's right. I should know who gets what. And sorting socks and making sure that they get on the right, to the right person is one thing. But knowing whom our allegiance and devotion is due to is something completely different. Infinitely more important. The Pharisees and the Herodians may have thought that they were sticking Jesus here with a gotcha question. That they uh, were finally going to have him. But Jesus' answer is so profound that it amazes them and it completely confounds them. And it ought to shape how we uh, view our life here on earth. Once again in verse 14, notice the question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? It's a big question that we will often ask. We live in, in, a, in a country with a very large government in which taxes go to many different things, quite often go to things that are ungodly that none of us would ever approve of, but yet we're coerced to pay them. Uh, and uh, if we don't, we have the threat of imprisonment or uh, hefty fines. It wasn't any different in Jesus' day. The governmental programs that Rome had going were on par, if not worse, than here in the United States of America. So yes, these people have ulterior motives. However, they're asking about the hot topic from the beginning of civilization. Is God down with us paying taxes or are we compromising our faith? And the tax that they're referring to is probably something called the, uh, the imperial poll tax or a head tax. In Jerusalem, it was a denarius, which was a unit of currency that was about a day's wage. Uh, the coin had Caesar Tiberius's image on it. And around the coin had these words, Tiberius Caesar Divi Augusti Filius Augustus. Did you get that? Okay, they've got it, right? Okay. Translates, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. On the back, it had an image of a woman, Perhaps it was his mother, Livia, with a crown on her head and a, an inverted spear in her right hand and a palm or an olive branch in the other with the words Pontifus Maximus. Two points to anyone that can tell me what that means. Dave. High priest. It says high priest around the sides. You can see the, the image up there. So you can see why some of the leadership of the Israelites would uh, balk at these coins. It's propaganda for pagan worship. By participating in this, they, in their minds, were thinking perhaps they're participating in pagan worship. And so in verse 15, Jesus responds to them by asking them to bring a denarius to them. Now the ironic thing <laughs> is that... Uh, in asking this request, he doesn't have the coin. But who does? They do. So they're asking them, Jesus, is it wrong for us to pay the tax because it's a pagan thing, but yet they are the ones that, are, that Rome is in their pockets. And so now, 
They brought a coin, and Jesus says, whose image and inscription is this on, he asked them. Caesar's, they replied. So the son of the, uh, of the divine's image is on it. And now Jesus shocks them in verse 17 when he says, well, then give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the thing that are God's. So in saying give the things to Caesar that are Caesar's, Jesus is unequivocally answering the question, should we pay our taxes? He is saying, yes. We should pay our taxes. That is what we need to do. In doing so, he is stating that there is a legitimate role and authority that the government has. As Christians living under the government's authority, we need to obey the words of Christ in 1 Peter chapter 2, where it says this. It says, submit to every authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Submit as free people, not as using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Honor everyone. Love the brothers and sisters. Fear God. Honor the emperor. And you can change the word emperor there for president, governor. It doesn't really matter. It's the same principle. And Paul warns in Romans chapter 13, So then the one who resists the authority or the state is opposing God's command. And those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. It doesn't mean we can't lobby for change. It doesn't mean that we can't be involved in government in order to make positive change. But it begs the question, are there limits on this authority? And yes, we'll get to that here in just a moment. But Jesus is in no uncertain terms saying that we are to pay our taxes whether we agree with them or not. Or the way they're distributed or used. To neglect that is to disobey God. Yet in the same sentence, uh, it is very clear that the state has limits. When Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar... And to God, the things that are God's, Jesus is very clear that there are some things that, that the state absolutely cannot touch. Romans 13 plainly says that authorities and rulers are instituted, ordained, given by God, and therefore their accountability, uh, they are accountable to them. If we were to look at the dollar bill here, we clearly see Andrew Jackson. And his image on it. And on the back side, on the $20 bill, it's a White House. This is an old $20 bill, by the way. Uh, so we have the, the White House on the back. And so here we, we see that there are images of the government. And Jesus says, let them have it. However, when Jesus looks at the Pharisees and he looks at the Herodians and he looks at the crowd that's listening and he looks at you and he looks at me he sees an entirely different image he sees the image of God imprinted in you and me he sees the image of God imprinted in our bodies in our abilities, 
in our ability to reason and so on. We're made in the image of God. We are not made in the image of the state. Therefore, we can give the state our taxes, but we give God our lives. Further, the state can make reasonable demands of us, but when it comes to following Jesus, it's hands off on that one, even in persecuted countries. And I don't say that flippantly. It's a serious business. Almost every day I come across an article that pops up in my email asking for prayer because there are authoritarian regimes that are persecuting our brothers and sisters all throughout the world. Not because they don't pay taxes. They do. But because they love Jesus. The churches are being burned in China as we speak. The church is meeting in secret in Afghanistan right now. To be found out there would be instant execution. They're being imprisoned. They're being tortured physically and psychologically. Some are being killed this very day because of their allegiance to Christ. And folks, I firmly believe that our day is coming. We've enjoyed some great freedoms, but I fear those days are going to come to an end at some point. And we may join our brothers and sisters throughout the world in being persecuted and having to go underground and have secret churches. I have a deep burden for what is coming. But the question that the Pharisees and the Herodians ask goes way deeper than the issue of taxes. It goes down to the fundamental question of who do you belong to? Government is good. We need the rule of law. But the government is not God. When you were created in the womb, when you were just a fertilized egg, God planted his seal, his image on you. That regardless if you trust in Christ and you're a Christian, you are made in the image of God. The Greek word in Genesis where it says the, that we are made in the image of God is the word icon. And we all know that word, right? We have icons around us all the time. You get in your car and you go down the, the freeway on the billboards. You're going to see logos. You're going to see icons that are representative of companies or individuals or even politicians right now in this time of midterm elections starting to, to heat up. You are the icon of God who holds the universe in the palm of his hand. Folks, I might not know whose socks go into whose baskets, but I am convinced that there is a God in heaven whose image I bear a God who has given me his all through his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And now through faith in him, I don't have any questions of whose basket my life goes in. I belong to God. And you do too. You were purchased by his blood. And as a result, I owe him everything. And you do as well. The question is, 
do you know who gets what? You know, we're inundated with these images and icons. Chances are that if you were to look on your clothing right now, there is somewhere an icon or a logo of a company. I have one right here. It says Jerry. That's my dad's name. I'm not, I'm not my dad. But it's from Costco. Costco does not own me. I use Costco to help me out. The same is with money. Money is good. We need it to survive and thrive. But when we look at the images that are printed on our coins, and when we look at the images that are printed on the bills, we might see a building. We might see a dead president on it, but we don't identify with it. Money doesn't own us. The government does not own us. And if you are here and you have a heart that is beating right now, it is evidence that you belong to someone else. And even after that heart stops beating, you will belong to God for eternity. Whether you're Christian or not yet, you bear the image of the one who created you. The one who loves you. The one who desires for you to turn from all your other allegiances and come to him.